This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Here's a story. A dear friend posted a photo on social media a couple of days ago. It was an advertisement in a newspaper called The Leeds Mercury dated 14 September 1861. The Faculty of Arts in the University College London was about to begin a new academic session. The advertisement contained a list of languages which were offered for study and the name of the lecturers who teach them. Several Indian languages were on offer. Dadabhai Nauroji, the famous Parsi nationalist, economic nationalist who also had become a member of of uh, the House of Lords uh, and House of Commons, I'm sorry, uh, was for instance to teach the Gujarati language. But what caught my immediate attention was a language called Hindustani. It was to be taught by one Said Abdullah. My problem was simple. If a language called Hindustani was taught at the University College London in 1861, how come it does not exist anymore? All the other languages in that list, Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, Arabic, Persian, Bengali and Gujarati survive quite handsomely today. So uh, look, uh, let's not make a mistake. I'm not talking about whether or not the common people speak it regularly. I know, for example, that very few people actually speak Latin today. But that's not my point. My point is every detail about this languages is recorded in credible books. and they are widely known spoken and admired however there is no trace today of the language called hindustani no surviving language is called hindustani anymore so what really happened how come such an important and influential indian language completely disappeared even though it was significant enough to be taught at the university of london as early as 1861 c j lyell or charles james lyell wrote a book called a sketch of the hindustani language in 1880 he called hindustani and i quote the most widely spoken vernacular language in india europeans gave the name hindustani he wrote to the most widely spoken and understood language in india it was spoken in the area called hindustan by the moguls that is the area which was called hindustan by the moguls was where this language was predominantly spoken 
Now, what did Hindustan mean? Hindustan meant the region enclosed by the Himalayas in the north, the Vindhyas in the south, the Punjab in the west, and Bengal in the east. Put simply, it meant the northern half of the Indian subcontinent. But it was spoken and understood clearly and fluently enough in Bengal, Gujarat, Punjab and the South in sufficient measure of clarity. The language was called Hindustani, mind you, only by the Europeans. The native speakers called it by various other names. It was called Urdu by some, Rekta by others, Dakhni by yet others. But it was distinct from Hindi yet. And it was not. I'll come to that. Hindi was a form of Hindustani, Lyle wrote, which employs Devanagari characters and which was used chiefly by Hindus. Yet, Lyle conceded that the name Hindi can be applied to any variant of Hindustani. And native authors, Indian authors that is, actually used Hindi as a synonym for Hindustani. So the language which was called Hindustani by the British was called Hindi by Indians. It was also called Urdu by others. Please understand the point. The same language was alternatively called Hindi and Urdu in 1880. Let us then restate the problem. The British had been looking for a pan-Indian language. They considered Hindustani, an urban language of North India, the lingua franca for the whole country. They associated it with both Urdu and Hindi. Even as they believed Urdu was spoken mostly by Muslims and Hindi mostly by Hindus. So, the literature of Anglo-India, I mean in the general sense of the British in India, is full of words from Hindustani. The work of Rudyard Kipling, for example, can hardly be understood or even enjoyed unless one is provided with a glossary of Hindustani words. There are many other examples of the use of Hindustani words in English speech from British writers. Even those um, like Sir Walter Scott, who had never been to India, had used Hindustani to portray characters, British characters who had been to India. Now, there were others who were quite famous writers who wrote about India and made it a distinctive feature of their characterization of the British who had been to India or spent time in India in influential positions. Some of the more well-known works of, uh, of Kipling, of course, 
Um, then there was uh, William Macpis Thackeray. There was E.M. Forster. There was William Knighton, Edward Thompson, Edmund Chandler, Flora Annie Still, Maud Diver, Alice Perrin, Christine Watson, and several others. The latest in this list was, uh, of course, Paul Scott and his Raj Quartet. All of these uh, writers and their work portray characters whose speech becomes colorful, authentic, or outlandish by the use of Hindustani words in it. It is as if one cannot create the distinctively exotic atmosphere of India if one does not use these Hindustani words. However, Hindustani was not learnt primarily to serve as a marker of these British officials or of past greatness or evidence of having lived an exotic or adventurous or heroic life. It was primarily learned as a tool of administration, of imperial administration. It was learned quite literally as a language of command. And of course, there's a the classic essay by anthropologist turned historian Bernard Cohn called uh, The Command of Language and The Language of Command. Cohn argues that uh, the British learned the vernacular languages, mostly Hindustani, to understand Indians better, so as to rule them, control them more efficiently. Now, it was required also by the British women, but uh, it was required only to order their servants and also by their children to play with Indian children and get the attention of their servants. Well, they did not exactly need to learn the language very well. The important thing was to learn a few words to throw about with an air of authority. It was a useful accessory of the British Sahib in India. You did not count for a sufficiently authoritarian figure if you did not shout or bark a few offensive orders in crude and casual Hindustani. The social history of languages can be approached as a study of how people learn these things and how they use them. Now, the question of social history of languages is of course connected with authority, including the authority of the state. We need, nonetheless, to understand the political and social circumstances by which people come to bracket or divide Hindi and Urdu and to associate language with certain social roles 
and community identities. Hindi for Hindus, Urdu for Muslims. But why? Why do we need to learn these histories? Simple, really. Later political processes either contested or approved these associations. Eventually, these divisions led to the partition of India. I mean the subcontinent and the emergence of three nation states, India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. I cannot make it sound more obvious, really. So, the role of colonial institutions, colonial individuals, officials, and colonial knowledge production is important here. This is to understand how a language was literally manufactured, constructed by the power of a foreign colonial regime. It is important to understand how languages were associated by the colonial state with bounded institutions and communities, with defined roles in the political structures. Simply put, it can be shown, inferred certainly, that the British had manufactured the idea that a single language became two languages when used by two communities. The British came to India with some assumptions about what is good and what is bad. These prior assumptions or prejudices were based on European outlooks and knowledge systems in which the British officials were trained. One such assumption was that there should be a standard language for the whole of the Indian subcontinent, that to have one standard and uniform language for the entire subcontinent is a good thing. I'm here talking about the late 17th century. Therefore, the colonial establishment ferociously, furiously chased the possibility of discovering, of identifying a language, Hindustani which would eventually subsume within itself a number of linguistic varieties and their literatures into one single standard language. They wanted this language to be located in dictionaries, in grammar books, to be taught in schools and used for official purposes and of course for a number of other uh, more dispersed functions and communications such as spying for instance. The bureaucratic, commercial and military aspects of the British colonial regime 
had developed new technologies of communication. At the higher levels, the language of public business was English. But with the important exception of the military, the colonial state made no effort to promote an indigenous Indian language beyond the provincial level. Now, the provincial level was a very diverse space. By the end of the 19th century, the modern standard languages of India, including Hindi and Urdu, had been institutionalized in schools, courts, in government offices, in books, periodicals, public meetings, and other kinds of familiar and uh, formal gatherings. Hindi, Urdu, or both, were official languages in the United Provinces, Bihar, the Central Provinces, Punjab, and quite a few princely states. Between them, Hindi and Urdu, or Hindustani, subsumed under it, or them, numerous languages and linguistic varieties. But how did Hindustani come about? Let's go back to 1772. That's about seven years after the company, the East India Company, took over the power, the authority to collect the revenue from the Bengal presidency in 1765. In 1772, the directors of the East India Company anointed, appointed Warren Hastings to stand forth as the Diwan. This was also the year that the first British study of an Indian language was published. It had a very long name. Let me tell you the name. It was called Grammatical Remarks on the Practical and Vulgar Dialect Language, commonly called Moors, the whole calculated for the common practice in Bengal. The name still does not make any sense to me. In any case, it's been a long time 1772, since the British had first come in India. They had been in India for quite some time. For over a century, the British traders and soldiers were happy to rely on interpreters of Portuguese or of Persian. They knew only that Hindustani, the language Hindustani was associated with Muslims, and it was useful for giving orders. The British began serious study of Sanskrit and Bengali only after they had established direct political authority. 
The British developed from their study of Indian languages some practical advantages, of course. But they also developed an ideology about languages. They believed that languages, like other objects in the world, could be classified and rearranged as mediums of exchange. Different languages had different histories of different peoples who spoke or used those languages to create literatures. So um, the entrepreneurial mentality of the British imagined languages as a commodity. Every language for them became a commodity. And this mentality was, of course, the governing spirit behind a man called John Gilchrist. Now, Gilchrist was um, something of a doctor, but also an occasional indigo planter. This guy, um, Gilchrist, arrived in 1782 in Bombay and found a position as an assistant surgeon in the army of the East India Company, in the Bombay Army. For two years, he was posted as Fatehgar. Fatehgar was um, a small military station in, in the Mughal heartland, not very far from Agra. And uh, he started learning the local language, Gilchrist. Along the way, he decided that the language that he had been learning, Hindustani, was not a local dialect at all. But, and I quote, the grand, popular, and military language of India. So, John Gilchrist had an epiphany and he believed that he would be performing a useful service for the Europeans in India by composing a proper dictionary and grammar of this language. In other words, he invented a market for the language. So he went to the governor general in council at Calcutta and sought a year's leave. He raised a subscription, got people to fund his project, and then grew a long black beard, put on Indian clothes, and traveled through the major cities of the Ganga Valley or the Gangetic Plain, the heartland of Hindustan. He finally settled in Faizabad, which was then a quite distinguished center of Urdu literature. There, in Faizabad, he gathered together a team of learned Hindustanis, including both Hindu and Muslim. 
he employed them as paid informants. According to Gilchrist, um, the Indians that he approached were astonished, completely surprised when he asked them if there were any indigenous dictionaries. They asked him in return if some such thing was even known in any country that men had to consult vocabularies and rudiments for their own vernacular speech. They had not heard of the possibility that people had a book of words to know a language that to speak naturally. Now, of course, Gilchrist set about, and I quote, to extract viva voce, every known word, in their voluminous tongue, unquote. His method was strictly inductive. He assembled his informants and proceeded with them. I quote, uh, ab, abab, ababa, abach, abad, abada, abaf, essentially a sequential chronicling of words, letter for letter. One or two syllables commonly led the way to a numerous tribe of words. In a few months, John Gilchrist had compiled what he thought was the full list of all words in Hindustani. As soon as he put together this list, he discovered, amusingly enough, that another military man, a certain army captain called Kirkpatrick, was also putting together a Hindustani English dictionary. So Gilchrist managed to go over to Captain Kirkpatrick and struck up a partnership with him. They set about to prepare an English-Hindustani dictionary together. However, there was a practical problem. Gilchrist's informants were less reliable because they kept straying beyond the boundaries of Hindustani. Arabic, Persian, or even Sanskrit words kept creeping in. Gilchrist was determined to differentiate between Hindustani and these other languages on the ground that he was attempting to locate the language that people spoke and thought. In India, the use of Persian, and I quote, was all art and ceremony, while the Hindustani was their native speech. That is the genuine effusion of nature and the heart, unquote. That is what Gilchrist believed at any rate. He said, for Hindus and Muslims, Hindustani spoke the language of the heart. 
of nature. Let me quote him again. Even the holy Brahman, who knows Sanskrit, is seldom proficient enough to meditate therein because it is still more dead to the active economic purpose of a living medium that presents itself in the Hindustani. Gilchrist was an enterprising and energetic man. However, he did not seek to purify the language. He considered Hindustani historically comparable to the accumulation of Saxon, Celtic, Latin, French and other languages in English, which had all resulted from migrations and conquests. As with English, it was necessary to liberate the language and to advance its cause in opposition to the languages of priests and aristocrats. He thought he was doing a great service to the common people of India. He was horribly against Sanskrit. He considered Sanskrit, and let me quote, um, he considered Sanskrit a cunning fabrication by the insidious Brahmins. Unquote. Gilchrist now saw his task as advancing the historical progress of Hindustan by discovering new uses for it. So he first established a proprietary language school in Calcutta. In, in 1800, he was appointed a professor of Hindustani at the newly established College of Fort William. For the next four years, 1800 to 1804, he put together a staff of Indian writers, of Indian literati, to literally invent a Hindustani prose. Make no mistake, Gilchrist um, tended to define Hindustani as a unified language that extended over the whole of India. He found three major varieties depending upon the extent to which they used Sanskrit, Persian, Arabic, or unmarked Hindi words. He did not, and I repeat, Gilchrist did not explicitly divide the language variations on Hindu-Muslim lines. Not yet. What is striking here is Gilchrist's sheer entrepreneurship. He was not a bureaucrat, but he behaved like one. He was continually falling out with his supervisors. During his relatively brief interludes of employment in the East India Company service, instead, through most of his long career, both in India and Britain, he sought investments and partnerships 
He hired informants, teachers and writers as employees. He extracted raw linguistic material from a wide variety of sources and he sold this product, the Hindustani language, as best as he could to the general public. The cause of his schools and his books was often advanced by paid advertisements. Like quite a few other philologists and lexicographers, those who study languages and write uh, dictionaries, John Gilchrist objectified the language Hindustani. He turned it into an object of study. He developed new possibilities for its use and circulation, especially through printing. He also showed that the vernacular language could be taught in school. When he was not working with language, he used to grow indigo. And uh, he made quite a bit of money there growing indigo. But in all these respects, Gilchrist, John Gilchrist, would seem to be the model representative of uh, what Benedict Anderson had called print capitalism. However, print capitalism was a precondition of the rise of national communities and the nation state. But here there was a difference. The difference, of course, was the colonial situation. The audience or the clientele for all these efforts of Gilchrist was exclusively British and primarily the officials of the East India Company. Yet, let's shift the focus a few decades down the line. By the middle of the 19th century, British authorities had formulated a very different approach, a very different analysis of the languages of India from those which were developed by their predecessors like Gilchrist. Now, um, a summary of this approach of the British about languages in India in the mid-19th century can be found in the preface. Let me quote, a glossary of the judicial and revenue terms of British India, which was published in 1855. It was written by, of course, the famous Indologist H. H. Wilson. He was the Borden Professor of Sanskrit at Oxford. According to Wilson, and here I enter the second part of my point about uh, the prospects of Hindustani. According to Wilson, there were two classes of Indian languages. Hindustani, also known as Urdu, and all others. 
According to Wilson, Hindustani was, and I quote, an admixture of the original languages of the Mahomedan conquerors with those of the Hindus. Unquote. It was loosely spread and at considerable intervals over the surface. Unquote. Now, its origin was identified clearly with Muslims. According to Wilson, the language becomes greatly corrupted as the distance increased from the major Mohammedan courts of Delhi, Lucknow and Hyderabad. Now, Wilson noted that the language used, and I quote, after a fashion, unquote, in government offices, the army, and among merchants, however, is entirely unknown in rural areas. The second class of language, that is, the different dialects of Hindus, belonged to clearly demarcated geographical regions. And for these regions, Wilson gave population estimates. The first and the most direct offset from Sanskrit, he wrote, was Hindi. And I quote again, Although the term is rather indefinite, being scarcely applicable to any single modification of the language spoken by the 30 millions of the Hindus of Hindustan. Unquote. So, given the purpose of this glossary, which was mainly for, for the purposes of judicial department, Wilson was primarily concerned with languages that had become objects of official requirement. That is, those languages which were used by government and which were required for employment by civilian officials. He noted, for example, that Punjabi, Sindhi, the dialects of Assam, as well as Barmese, were now necessary as well. Now, the list of these languages is remarkably matching, in fact, with the official languages of the present day, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. He noted that the previous style of study of languages was largely the voluntary work of individuals, including missionaries and adventurers such as Gilchrist. He argued that these studies now should be taken over by the government departments. It should no longer be left at the hands of amateurs. So you have two stories here. Hindustani was practically invented by adventurer officials like John Gilchrist within 60 or 70 years of this discovery. It was also divided in official perception 
as languages of Muslims and Hindus respectively. It's a much longer story, of course, and I'll come to other dimensions of this story. But this story has several future developments before this, this distinction, the difference, the association of Hindi with Hindus and Urdu with Muslims eventually result in partition. The most poignant phase of this, this journey of the language called Hindustani would come in 1890s, in fact, when there would be recurring riots over what was called the script controversy. And by 1940s, there would be terrible confusion and misunderstanding about what should be the appropriate language of newscasts from All India Radio. How many Urdu words were permissible? How many Hindi words could be allowed? There were long meetings, committees, daily discussions. Two experts having to come in and carry out translations of English newscasts, weigh them word for word, keeping in mind the official requirement and strictures about the exact proportion of words to be officially recorded in these broadcasts. But that story must wait for another episode. In this episode, I simply wanted you to be introduced to the rise and uh, prosperity, I suppose, of a wholly fictitious pan-Indian language called Hindustani which became so famous that it was taught in British universities in 1860s and 70s, indeed throughout the 19th century, but which sadly disappeared from all reckoning by the 1940s. Long live Hindustani. I'll see you next week.